Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good evening. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Colossians, the third chapter. Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. And tonight we come to our final article in the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 18, on the family. Uh, I am fond of saying that uh, the most wonderful thing that ever happened to me occurred when I was about 10 years old, when I received the Lord Jesus as my personal Savior in Atlanta, Georgia. My mom and dad led me to Christ. But coming on the heels of that, I would say that the next most wonderful thing that ever happened to me was marrying my wife, Charlotte, in uh, May of 1978 uh, when I was 21 years old and she was 19. And then following that, being blessed by the Lord with four sons that have grown up to love the Lord. And now three uh, daughter-in-laws, four grandchildren, and two more on the way, one to be born next week. And one to be born uh, in Amman, Jordan, around uh, May the 20th. And so I love the family. I love being married. I love having children. I love having grandchildren. And uh, it grieves me greatly that there are so many people out there who are not experiencing in marriage and family uh, what God intended. Uh, it grieves me that uh, even in the church... And there are far too many people that are not enjoying the blessings of family life as God intended. And uh, there are reasons why that is the case. And the article that we examine tonight gives us insight into what God's purpose and plan is. And we can then begin to do a little evaluation about how far have we moved away from God's plan, God's blueprint, God's design for marriage and for family. We're going to look at a number of scriptures tonight, but uh, the last one that we will actually have printed in our notes is found in Colossians 3, uh, 18 through 21. I call this the Reader's Digest version of God's instruction on the home because he has in each verse a word for the four major members of the family, that being uh, the wife, the husband, children, and parents. And here's what Paul writes, wives... Submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. The word submit is an imperative uh, to your own husband, makes specific to whom a woman is to submit, and he notes it is fitting. It is appropriate in the Lord for you to do this. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. The word love is an imperative, a word of command. The phrase, do not be bitter, is also an imperative and a word of command. So God has a positive word for husbands. You love your wives. And as we will see in Ephesians, he specifies that that love is to be a sacrificial love, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And then secondly, the negative word, don't allow bitterness, a root of bitterness toward your wife to uh, make itself at home in your heart. Then thirdly, children, obey. Word of imperative. Obey your parents in all things. Why? Because this is well-pleasing to the Lord. And then finally, fathers. And I don't think it is the case that mothers are not to also do what you find in verse 21. 
But I do believe, as we're going to see in our scriptures this evening, that uh, the Bible has a consistent teaching that God calls men to the leadership assignment in the home. It is the husband, it is the father, who is to be the leader in terms of spiritual instruction. Uh, He is to be the leader in terms of disciplining and also teaching the children. So, fathers, do not provoke, another imperative, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And that last phrase could be translated, uh, lest they lose heart or lest they lose spirit. Now, what is it that the article says about the family, excuse me, that we need to understand tonight that will help us see both God's ideal, but also in our narrative, how it is that we moved away from that as well. Well, here's what Article 18 says. God has ordained the family as the foundational institution of human society. We're going to see tonight that God ordained the home, God ordained government, and God ordained the church. But the thing that he ordained as foundational is the family. And then the next statement is composed of persons related to one another by marriage, by blood, or adoption. And I am so glad that they included those last two words, or adoption. Um, my former pastor in Louisville, uh, Dr. Kevin Ezell and his wife, Lynette, God blessed them with three biological children. Since those three children showed up into this world, they have adopted a Chinese little girl, an Ethiopian little girl, and a Filipino son. And the fact of the matter is, as Kevin and Lynette would say, those last three that have joined their family are just as much a part of the family as their first three biological children. And that, by the way, is consistent with the teachings of Scripture. Next paragraph. Marriage, then, is the uniting of one man and one woman in covenant commitment for a lifetime. It's God's unique gift to reveal the union between Christ and his church and to provide for the man and the woman in marriage. The number one framework for intimate companionship. Number two, the channel of sexual expression according to biblical standards. And number three, the means for procreation of the human race. And again, three very wonderful affirmations in the article that are rooted in Scripture. Next paragraph is a very crucial one. The husband and the wife are of equal worth before God. I think most of us in this room tonight would take that as a given. But there was a time in even Christian history when women were viewed as being ontologically or essentially inferior in some way or another to a man. And that is unbiblical. It is wrong-headed theologically. So this statement says it very well. The husband and wife are of equal worth before God, since, here's the rationale, both are created in God's image. A woman is an equal image bearer of God as a man. The marriage relationship then models the way God relates to his people. A husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He has the God-given responsibility to provide for, to protect, and to lead his family. A wife is to submit herself graciously to the servant leadership. I'm so glad it's there in that way. Servant leadership of her husband, even as the church willingly submits to the headship of Christ. She, being in the image of God, as is her husband, and thus equal to him, 
has the God-given responsibility to respect her husband and to serve as his helper. That's Genesis 2 language, as we'll see in just a moment. And to serve as his helper in managing the household and nurturing the next generation. Children, from the moment of conception, are a blessing and heritage from the Lord. That's Psalm 127 and 128 language. Parents are to demonstrate to their children God's pattern for marriage. In other words, children learn how to love and relate to their future mate by watching their mom and dad love and relate to one another. Parents then ought to teach their children spiritual and moral values and to lead them through consistent lifestyle example and loving discipline to make choices based on biblical truth. Children are indeed, this is Ephesians 1 through 3 language, children are to honor and obey their parents. And then you'll notice that bottom of that page and the next page, there are a massive number of scriptures that are found in this particular article because the Bible speaks extensively to the issues of marriage and family. But let's read a couple of these together. And as one man as well said, you and I could not understand the world in which we live apart from Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Genesis 1 and 2 explains to us why there's so much good in this world. Genesis 3 explains to us why there's so much bad, so much sadness, so much sin in this world. And so Genesis 1, 26 through 28, then God said, let us, note the plurality there, the verb is singular, yet the pronoun is plural, giving at least intimations of the doctrine of the Trinity. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the bears of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This is often called by theologians the cultural mandate, where we're given the responsibility to tend and care for God's good creation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so there's the general introductory statement that you have in the Bible about God bringing a man and a woman into existence. But then chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, zeroes in more precisely and specifically on what God intended. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a, this is a key phrase, helper comparable to him. And by the way, that word helper is often used in the Bible to talk about God. In other words, in the same way that God condescends to help humans like you and me, so a wife is in like manner to help and assist her husband. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept. And he took out of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, and actually the word rib is a uh, more precise translation than is needed because it just really says from his side. And so we don't know if it was a rib or not. There was a time when some people actually believed that a man on one side had one less rib than does he on the other side. Uh, that ain't so. 
We have an equal number of ribs on both sides. He simply took from the side of Adam, and then he closed him up, and then this is what happened. Then that which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. She is, in other words, a man with a womb, hence she is a woman. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. But then tragically, here comes Genesis 3. And in my notes, I've written the phrase, here begins the battle of the sexes. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, he led Eve and Adam into eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are cursed more than all cattle. And more than every beast of the field on your belly, you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Verse 15 is often referred to by theologians as the proto-evangelium, the first preaching of the gospel. God speaks, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. Some translations say crush. I like it better, though it is exactly the same two Hebrew words. And so this translation reflects that. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. But I think theologically, the word can bear both meanings. Uh, theologically, I would prefer that he, that is the coming seed of woman, that is the Messiah, Jesus, he will crush your head, serpent. And yes, you shall bruise his heel, I believe a reference to his death upon the cross. To the woman he said, all right, here we go. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Gosh, I could spend all night doing my running commentary. I won't go too far. Let me just say this. I have a friend that's a doctor that uh, used to have people come to see him uh, who claimed to be, and I, I'm sure they were, Bible-believing Christians. And the men would say to him when they found out that she was an OBGYN, that the woman was pregnant, uh, he would uh, hear husbands say to him, Now, when she goes into labor, don't you give her anything for the pain? Because she is supposed to, what does it say again? She is to, in pain, bring forth children. Now, personally, I wish such men could bear children. That would be my wish upon them. And I wish God would give them labor for about, oh, a week. And it would be massive labor for a week. In fact, I wish they would have perpetual contractions for a week. And I bet you they would change their stupid theology with respect to uh, a woman receiving some type of aid to alleviate pain while she is laboring. By the way, if you follow that logic, well, let me read on then. Verse 17, then he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, curses the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Well, let me just stop right there. My good doctor friend, who is also very good at um, uh, responding to such idiotic statements by uh, foolish young men, said, well, I, 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 I'm quite certain that wherever you work, you do not avail yourself of air conditioning now, do you? And, of course, they would sit there and say, well, why not? And he would say, because it says right there in the text, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So if your wife has got to hurt when she bears a child, you need to sweat when you perform your particular duty. You see how dumb this is. 
But it's amazing how dumb some Christians can be. So we'll move on to a happier note. So for out of uh, it, that is the ground you were taken for dust you are and dust you shall return to dust. You shall return. And Adam called um, his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, which is what the word Eve means. Exodus twenty twelve. Honor your father and mother, kids. This is your uh, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God has given you. That, of course, is one of the Ten Commandments. Drop down to Malachi two fourteen through 16. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one having a remnant of the spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. For it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. And, of course, the key phrase there is that God hates divorce. And then the top of the next page, we just read the Colossians text. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. But I would note that the most full detail of what you find in Colossians 3:18 through 21 is in Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 4. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 7 has a lot to say about marriage. Titus 2 has a lot to say about older men, older women, younger men, younger women. And 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 talks about how a saved wife can lead an unsaved husband to the Lord and also points out to a husband that if he is not rightly related to his wife in the daily relationship of marriage, it will even harm and hinder his prayer life. All right. So with that as a major, massive, uh, uh, quick summary of biblical truth, what can we say about the Bible and what Article uh, 18 teaches us? The Bible is replete with family imagery, as Evans in the many wonderful verses cited for the Baptist Faith and Message, Article 18. The importance of the marriage relationship unfolds symbolically in the Old Testament with God as husband and Israel as wife. And in the New Testament with Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the radiant bride. Clearly, then, both marriage and family are distinctly theological. In other words, the marriage and family relationships are rooted deeply in other basic bedrock theological truth. A healthy home, then, has deep spiritual dimensions. And thus, the Bible instructs us concerning the family. We, as believers, must look first to Jesus Christ. He is indeed to be the head of the home. He is our bridegroom. And to engage and understand the divine design for marriage. Thus, the family provides the altar of transformation. I like that. Where we learn to love and live like Jesus. You see, God reveals himself as a relational being. And we are created in his image for lasting Intimate relationships first with God himself and then secondly also with others. Thus God's ideal for the home, an intimate relationship that brings deep soul satisfaction to both husband and wife models grace 
and it models faith for the children and proclaims to a lost and lonely world the type of love that God has for his people. So, in other words, marriage and family life ought to be a witness to children about the difference that Jesus Christ makes when he is Lord of a home and Lord of one's life. And also, it shows to a lost cynical, skeptical world that a relationship with Jesus Christ really does make a difference. This intimacy then extends from a spiritual foundation through a relational sphere and culminates in the physical expression within the bonds of marriage. The scripture then gives unique imperatives directed to the husband, the wife, and in your notes I need to add a phrase, I've missed it somehow, add the phrase, the parents, and the children. So there again is a fourfold uh, job description given for marriage and family life. The husband has a job description. The wife has a job description. Parents, and in particular fathers, have a job description. And children have a job description that then details what submissiveness looks like in the close quarters living of marriage and family. The key text of the Bible then is Ephesians 5, 21 through chapter 6 and verse 4. The godly husband will both nourish continually and cherish continually his wife. Both of them uh, in Ephesians 5, 29, 30 are uh, present tense participle, speaking of continuous action. In other words, he will love her. He's commanded to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Thus, the spiritual husband is a submissive servant of Christ. He is a humble man. He is a gentle man. He faithfully puts his wife's welfare, and I would add that of the children, and their needs above his own. The godly wife will respect and honor her own husband. She will submit to him as unto the Lord. Indeed, both her character and her conduct can draw an unbelieving husband to faith. First Peter 3, 1 through 6. In fact, it's very interesting. First Peter 3 says that a, a saved woman will lead her unsaved uh, husband to Christ without a word. It's an amazing statement if you think about it. A woman will not nag or gripe her husband into the family of God, but by her gentle and quiet spirit, by her Christ-like character and her Christ-like conduct, God will use that to soften his heart and draw him to the Savior. For each then, the Lord Jesus is the motivation and object of an obedient life. Both husband and wife, absolute, equals before the Lord, fix their eyes first upon him and then upon each other. In other words, if you're having trouble in your marriage, what you need to do is get closer to Jesus. What you need to do is pursue Jesus. What you need to do is focus upon Christ and let Christ do his work in your life. And by making you more like him, he'll make you a better, more attractive, more wonderful, more fulfilling, more satisfying, more helpful, more valuable mate. And so um, ultimately, the issue is not trying to change your mate. In fact, you should even try to change your mate because, number one, you can't. And number two, the person you ought to be working on is you, is you. And so we focus upon Christ and then upon the other. Thus, obedience for the Christian is neither optional, selective, nor conditioned upon the spouse's response or behavior. In other words, a man is to love his wife 
period. He doesn't love his wife because she does lovely things. He doesn't love his wife uh, uh, if she does lovely things or if she is a lovely kind of person. No, you love her even when she's not lovely. You love her unconditionally in the same way that Jesus loved you when he died on the cross for your sins because you nor I were lovely when he died on that cross for our sins. Should God then bless such a household with children? And most of the time he does. They will witness daily submission and godly love as they are charged to obey their parents in the Lord. In other words, it's going to be hard for kids to do what God tells them to do when they don't see mom and dad doing what God told them to do. But when your children see daddy loving mama unconditionally and sacrificially and serving her, and when they see mama loving and submitting and serving daddy unconditionally, then that motivates them as well to want to honor and obey mom and dad in the Lord because they see what God is doing reflected in the lives of their parents. Thus, the family of God operates in direct opposition to our culture and our natural tendencies to self-centeredness, self-absorption, self-gratification. And yes, it does require the supernatural enablement of the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm fond of saying when I do marriage seminars that the hardest work I've ever done is work in marriage. It's hard work. It has good days and it has bad days. It has great times and it has difficult times. And it just it's just going to require great effort, great energy, sacrifice, time, attention, care. It just comes with the territory. And so we understand this and we recognize that we do indeed need the enablement of the Holy Spirit to be the kind of man or woman God has saved us and called us to be. Thus, the theology of family is characterized by each member. I love this statement from Mark Rathel. Each member outdoing the service or outdoing the other in service, in sacrifice, and in submission to the Lord, reflecting gratitude for God's faithful, intimate love toward us. Just think about it. I'm trying to outdo Charlotte in service, sacrifice, and submission. She's trying to outdo me. Uh, I'm trying to outdo my sons. They're trying to outdo me. Just imagine the blessing that accrues when a family is approaching marriage and family life in that kind of a way. Now, Mark Rathel of the Baptist College of Florida makes a fascinating observation at the bottom of page 5. I am not aware of another denominational confessional statement that includes an article on the family. You say, why not? Well, I think in part the need wasn't as great as it is today. Uh, would you all agree that in America today there is significant gender confusion? Uh, in America today, we really don't have a good idea of what marriage really is and what family life really should be or look like. In fact, today we probably have as many definitions as there are universities and colleges with departments of sociology that study all of this kind of thing. And so we recognized that there was the need to put this article in the Baptist faith and message. We did so in 1998. And the fact of the matter is the secular media went absolutely ballistic, uh, thinking we had lost our minds and returned to the age of the of the of the Neanderthals. Still, the family article arose in response to general societal conditions and pressures on the contemporary American family. Top of page six then. What then does the Baptist faith and message teach by way of summary concerning the family? We make three concluding observations. Number one, 
The BFNM affirms the family as the foundational institution of society. God created and ordained, as I mentioned earlier, three social institutions for the benefit of humanity. He instituted the family, number one, government, number two, and the church, number three. God birthed the church on the day of Pentecost. God instituted government at some time after the historical entrance of sin into human experience. But God instituted the social structure of the family first in the Garden of Eden, and he did so before humanity's fall into sin. You see, I believe Ephesians 5, 21 through 6, 4 reflects what God is redeeming and restoring. I think it's getting us back to what marriage and family looked like in Genesis 2 before Genesis 3 disrupted and messed everything up. And basically what you find in Genesis 3 is that women will either seek to manipulate men or they will allow themselves to be dominated by men. And on the other hand, men will either be autocratic, dictatorial, and uh, act very brutish in their relationship to women, or they will advocate their responsibilities and they will become passive and they will step back and they will not assert themselves in a healthy spiritual kind of a way. In fact, we even see this, unfortunately, working itself out in church. I agree with a friend of mine who said years ago, when it comes to the church, if, if, if women lead, men will sit back and watch. But if men lead, women will follow. The fact matter is, strong masculine males are not going to follow feminine leadership in the church. It's just not going to happen. Now, you say, well, that's just a pragmatic argument. No, it's not going to happen because it's the way God made us in our innermost beings in terms of the way he designed us to respond and to lead and to act with respect to one another. And so the family serves as both the foundational societal unit and a microcosm of society. Indeed, as the family goes, so goes the societal institutions of government and church. And the family, in a real sense, mirrors God's nature as a personal being, a relational being, and a communal being. Second, the BFNM properly defines the family as, quote, persons related to one another by marriage, blood, or adoption. And I will tell you, I'm very excited about the younger generation with their passion uh, and their fervency for adoption. I, I pray that it will not be just a passing fad. Uh, I pray it will not just be something that kind of comes and goes. I've argued for years. In fact, uh, several years ago when I was living in Louisville, Dennis Rainey of Family Life Ministries and I got into a phone conversation for some reason. And uh, he basically said, you know, why don't Southern Baptists, as big and mammoth as you are, just jump into the world of adoption? He said, Danny, there are today 12 million AIDS orphans in Africa alone. And if AIDS continues to spread across the continent as it is currently doing, you're looking at 20 million uh, AIDS orphans by 2015. Imagine if all of them were adopted into Christian homes where they were taught the Bible, where they were faithfully instructed in the gospel, and then brought to faith in Christ. Could you imagine that? What a difference that would make, not only in their lives, but potentially especially if they were led by God to go back uh, to their homeland as missionaries or as businessmen or whatever, what an incredible impact that would make for the cause of Christ. Now, again, for some people, the idea of a white person adopting a black person is unconscionable. Well, I just simply say to you, shame on you. Shame on you. That's why I love my former pastor so well, because he's got a little girl that's of yellow skin. 
He's got a little girl that is as black as midnight, and he's got a little boy that has olive skin, one from China, one from Ethiopia, and one from the Philippines. And I'll tell you what, it has radicalized their church. It has absolutely driven a stake into the heart of bigotry and racism in that church. And that is a good, glorious, wonderful thing. And so I'm grateful for the culture of adoption. I hope it continues to grow and expand. And I would love to see more of us be involved in this vital ministry of mercy and of grace. But we also note second sentence in that paragraph that the Bible highlights the extended family. A biblical family, yes, consists of parents and children, but also of grandparents, in-laws, uncles, aunts, and cousins. Further, the practice of adoption beautifully portrays the family of God. It reminds us that salvation from beginning to end is the act of God on our behalf. And you know from Galatians chapter 4 and Romans 8 that the Bible uses the imagery of adoption as to how it is that you and I, through faith in Christ, have been brought into the family of God. In other words, everybody in this room tonight who's a Christian, and I'm praying every one of you is, just a bunch of spiritual orphans. We're just a bunch of spiritual orphans that by grace have been adopted into like a really cool family, like a really awesome family. And so there's a real sense in which adoption gives a beautiful picture and portrait of the gospel. All right. Third, the BFNM highlights the biblical purposes of marriage. God created marriage for intimate companionship. A relationship the Bible describes as a one flesh relationship. The biblical teaching regarding this one flesh relationship extends beyond the uniting of husband and wife in an intimate sex relationship. It certainly involves that, but it's more. You see, marriage involves a physical, a spiritual, and a psychological interrelationship between husband and wife. Marriage then provides the proper expression of sexual expression. In other words, sex is a good gift from a great God. So rather than being something evil, the Bible affirms sexual intimacy as a gift from God. And indeed, Paul taught that husbands and wives have both mutual responsibilities relative to sexual fulfillment. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. But marriage also exists for the propagation for children. The Bible teaches that God, that children are a gift and heritage from the Lord, and therefore we should celebrate them. Now, this is for free, and as an aside very quickly, I'm often asked by people, well, how many kids do you think we should have? After all, the Bible says uh, that blessed is the man who has a what? Quiverful. A quiverful. Well, I talked through Psalm 127 and 128, here uh, a little over a year ago, and um, I worked through those two psalms, and I did a lot of research, and the fact is I could never find a specific number that would identify what a quiverful is, and I, that did not surprise me, because I don't think there's a one size that fits all. I don't think it's the case that God expects all of us to have exactly the same number of children. Uh, you say that uh, you and your wife had, we had four. Uh, why? Well, I don't know. We always wanted four. When we got married, I said to Charlotte, I said, I'd like to have about four kids. How many do you like to have? She said, four. I said, good. We agree on something. What a marvelous thing in our first few weeks of marriage. And so when they started showing up, we started having them, two first and three. And I can still remember, you know, at the time, I thought maybe I'd like to extend this. But I asked the question at the wrong time. 
I asked her while she was laboring with number four if she would like to consider having a fifth. And needless to say, she did not respond in the affirmative. Now, I think maybe I could have persuaded her later about considering that. But at the time, no, that was not on her radar screen. And so we were blessed with four. We felt like we could handle four. And that's what we did. You say, well, I don't think we can have that many. Well, again, the bottom line is you seeking God's face in all of this. I will say this now. I am in agreement with my good friend, Al Moeller. I can't imagine a deeply devout Christian couple intentionally, decisionally, and purposefully deciding not to have any kids unless it was for the specific purpose of being involved in missions in a context that was extremely demanding and dangerous. I cannot imagine that someone would deny a good gift that God has for them in the area of children. I just find that uh, amazing that anyone would even think like that. And yet, outside of our kind of uh, conservative, uh, evangelical, uh, Southern Baptist context, where we do make a big deal of kids. I mean, uh, the, the church here, I imagine, has lots of folks with lots of kids. Come over to the seminary, my soul. It's just like they're exploding like rabbits all over the campus. It's an amazing thing uh, to watch. No, evangelicals who believe the Bible tend to have a really high view of marriage, family, and children. But you need to understand we're out of step with the rest of the world. We are, are, are radically out of step with the rest of the world. And again, you do the studies and you discover that most of the rest of the world is aging. And they're not replacing the aging population with sufficient children to grow up and then bear the tax load and the workforce obligations. And it's going to cause some real trauma in a lot of places in the world in the coming days. In fact, some governments now will give you tax credits if you will have children. They will help fund it because they know they are in desperate need of having them. Again, all I would say is this. Children are a gift from God. You should celebrate them. And I think have as many as you believe God will allow you to properly care for, raise, and, uh, and, and present to him as a gift uh, in light of the great gift he gave you of those children. So finally, marriage does testify to the gospel in that the scriptures use the marriage bond as an illustration of the relationship between God and his people. You see, husbands are to reflect Christ as the head of the home. And wives ought to reflect the church as it willingly yields to its head and leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we could spend weeks talking about marriage and family because your word has so much to say. But let us just summarize it tonight by simply noting that it was the first institution you ordained. You gave it to us as a great gift to be enjoyed and to provide the context for intimacy, for relationships, for children. And we thank you for all of that and more. And, Lord, we live in a day where marriage and family uh, is under such attack, uh, whether it be from the divorce culture that has just ravaged us, whether it be from the sexually promiscuous movement where people live together, or they engage in lesbian relationships or homosexual relationships or bisexual or transgender, all that that's going on out there. Lord, we need to once more, without apology and with grace, hold up your model for marriage and family. You have not changed your mind. It is one man, 
within the covenant of marriage with one woman for life. And may we, Lord, hold that ideal high before our own eyes and pursue it with all of our heart. Help us then, Lord, to teach that to our children and even to our grandchildren, that we might see a new day and a new generation where marriage and family life once more are honored appropriately as you have revealed them in your word. This we ask and pray for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.